Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program's Foundations in Faith, where we um, follow the, the Gospels as the Church lays them out for us, and reflect upon them in such a way that perhaps they might lead us to deeper wisdom, deeper understanding, and perhaps deeper prayer. For the Word of God, we know, is not a book. It's not a printed page. It is a person. It is the Word of the Lord. It is Logos. John tells us that uh, the Word was made flesh and dwells among us. So this encounter, therefore, with with the Word of God, is an encounter with God's revelation of himself to his people. And that encounter is not something that we, that we um, meet only um, with our minds, but also with all of our sensory perceptions, with our hearts, with our soul, and so forth. For we don't really engage another person in a real relationship that is purely intellectual, purely of the mind. I think that when that happens, I think we call those uh, those kinds of relationships platonic relationships. Um, it means that there's really just no real emotional engagement, but it's just wh- whatever it is. It's a single dimension of the human person. It's not a complete. It's not a complete encounter. And when we encounter the Word of God, it is a complete encounter. We encounter the person of Jesus Himself. So that when we look at these Gospels, we have to realize and understand that this is not just kind of a textbook, nor is it just simply kind of an intellectual exercise. It is meeting someone and learning more about them and learning deeply about them. And in so doing, as in most relationships, we learn also then a great deal about ourselves. The Gospel that we're taking today is the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It is the wedding feast of Cana. But there's many, there's, there's many um, pieces to, to this Gospel. And, uh, and so it's really important for us to look deeply into it, to, to really see what it is that the Lord is doing, who he is in the midst of this text. And the gospel begins, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. What's pretty clear is that Jesus is still fairly close to home, that the one really invited to the wedding is Mary, and uh, because, um, because of her son, they invite her son also, and his friends, his companions. And... Um, so they were also there. There's something really kind of interesting about this. The first time that we encounter a miracle of the Lord, we encounter it in kind of a social situation, in kind of a situation that's not extraordinary, that's not in any way unusual. Um, and it's a story of an ordinary life, people, someone being invited to a wedding celebration. So it's kind of Jesus among his own social peer groups and so forth. Um, Mary being the one obviously best known to the, to the, to the family that's hosting the wedding feast. And, uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's a gathering, something like all of us have been to, something like all of us are familiar with and all of us know about. When they ran out of wine, since the wine provided for the wedding was all finished, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
One of the worst things that can happen in a Middle Eastern household, and certainly maybe even in our own, is to invite a large crowd of people over and to run out of things. And especially at a feast, to, to run out of, when, when the drink of the day is wine, to run out of wine, which kind of puts the damper on the whole party as an embarrassment to the host, and, uh, and kind of is an early dismissal in a way. Of, uh, of people from the celebration, which no one really wanted to do, and especially at these kinds of wedding feasts, which went on for a very long time. So miscalculating probably both the number of people, for while you're invited to these things, you're also very welcome just simply to stop by, even if you're not invited. Um, the same as in, in homes and so forth in, in ancient Israel. So the mother of Jesus, then, is the one who appears, who comes forward in this situation, in this very difficult situation for the hosts, and says, they have no wine. Um, it is, in a sense, in the form of a question as well as of a statement. She's turning to Jesus to say this because, in her mind, Jesus can do something about this. And Jesus turns to her and says, Woman, why do you turn to me? My hour has not yet come. This is an interesting exchange. Some of the texts, because some of the translations, because they're offended by Jesus addressing his mother as woman, some of them change it to mother, but in so doing, they change the whole meaning of the gospel. Because woman, while it was certainly a way of social address, it would have been unusual for Jesus to have addressed his mother in that way in public. But there is, in John's mind, something deeper going on here, because woman is also the image of Eve. And so Mary now emerges in the story of the wedding feast of Cana as the new woman, as the one now who represents not just herself, um, but who represents the believing community. John is very insistent that Mary, and when we go back to John 19, we find it even more clearly, that Mary is not just the mother of the Lord, that Mary is also the woman. She is also the one who embodies all that's good in human nature, all that existed before the fall of human nature, all that existed before original sin. And in such, she is also then the first of the redeemed community. And so in John, she does represent the church. She represents the people of God. In so doing then, and he addresses her as woman, he makes it clear that this is not just a maternal request, that this is in fact a formal request that he step out of the shadows and that he enter in to the fullness of the revelation of who he truly is. But he says, my hour has not yet come. His hour in John, the hour coming, the glorification of the Lord and so forth, is his death and resurrection. And he is saying then, you know, the fullness of the revelation of who I am has not yet, the time has not yet come for that to be revealed. It will be revealed soon and in due time. But Mary, now having established this dialogue of, of a representative of the believing community to the Messiah, with great confidence and trust in Jesus, she says to, she says to, the, uh, to the, the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. 
And so we have here a story of intercession, a story that shows the power of the Virgin, a story that shows the transformation of Mary as simply the mother of the Lord to also the mother of the redeemed, the mother of the community. She represents the community here in this wedding feast of Cana. She is the spokesperson. She is the one that steps forward in representation of all the guests and the hosts and so forth and intercedes with her son for him to resolve this very simple problem in their life, a problem that does not, is not kind of in any way, shape, or form something earth-shattering or earth-shaking. It is simply embarrassing and inhospitable and therefore kind of a disgrace for the hosts. So Mary then, representing this community, as she does, then she says, and he addresses her not as mother, but he addresses her as community, as woman, as the first of the redeemed, as the new Eve, and so forth. This word is going to remain a nomenclature for the Virgin in the Gospel of John. Woman is how he addresses her, because she is now more than just his mother. She is now the one who represents the new humanity as well. And the new humanity is the redeemed humanity. It is the church. It is the people of God. So, in confidence, in confidence, she turns to the servants and tells them, do whatever he says. And now there were six stone water jars standing there, meant for the ablutions that were customary among the Jews. Each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. So, what we're talking about is somewhere around 150 gallons of water available. Um, for the washings and the ablutions. It also indicates with that many stone jars and with that much water that this was a fairly large crowd. Um, you don't need 150 gallons of water simply to wash off the feet or wash the hands or something of a few guests. You have to have a significant crowd to use that many um, jars of water. So Jesus then says, once it has been established why he is doing this and under what circumstances he is doing this. And those circumstances are that the redeemed community, the woman, has interceded with him for those who are in need within the community. She is the representative of the needs within the community, the needy people within the community. And so Jesus then says, fill them to the brim, fill the jars with water. Now he said, now draw some out. And he told them to take it to the steward. And they did this, and the steward tasted the water, and it had turned into wine. Having no idea where it came from, only the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said, people generous, generally serve the best wine first and keep the cheaper sort till the guests have had plenty to drink. But you have kept the best wine until now. Not only does Jesus resolve the problem, but he resolves it in a way far superior to any way that anyone else could have served it, could have um, um, performed it. He therefore is serving the wine that Jesus creates out of the water is, in fact, the best. It is that which has the touch of the divine, the perfection of the Lord himself, is in the drink that he provides for the guests. This tells us a great deal about the nature 
of the Church as an intercessory body for the world, the nature of the Blessed Mother as a person of great power and a person of great influence, and it tells us something about the divinity of the Lord, who, though he now has become aware of his of who he is, however that happens, and we've talked before about the problematic of the consciousness of Jesus about who he was, we can't say that he knew everything, that he was omniscient. Um, we can say that in his divinity, he certainly did, but his humanity encased his divinity. And he could not have been human had he had a divine mind operative within his fleshly existence. There had to be some process. And the gospel it says, itself says he grew in wisdom and in knowledge. And so, and in grace. And so what we see then is a dramatic occasion, not just simply the wedding feast of Cana, not just simply, you know, doing a good thing for an embarrassed host. What we see now is, first of all, an identification of the people of God. Secondly, we have an, a, a sense of the power of the intercession, not only of the Blessed Mother, but of the Church itself. We also then see that within the Messiah, there is the power of restoration, the power of moving back the faults, the, the darkness, the blankets of sin that have lain upon humanity and restoring the best, restoring what was supposed to have been. And in a simple sort of way, the best of wine was certainly the kind of wine that would have existed had not we had the fall from grace, had not we had the original sin and the exile from paradise. So it is the Lord then as the new creation, the new creator, coming into the world and restoring to the world that which should have been there from the beginning had we not alienated ourselves from the Lord, had we not altered the whole structure of human nature through the original sin, which was actually a temptation to try and replace God with ourselves. If we remember that temptation in the, in the garden when Eve is in dialogue with the serpent and... <coughs> The serpent says to her, do you know why God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil? And Eve said, no, I don't know why. And he said, well, because of the serpent said, well, if you do, it's going to be because you're going to be like God. And of course, that was the tipping point. That's when she therefore went and took the fruit and ate it. Um, it is the constant and the chronic temptation of human nature to be dissatisfied with our own limitations, to be dissatisfied with our own inadequacies, and try to find some way for us to exalt ourselves, try and find some way for us to put ourselves completely in control of the world and the situations in which we live. A great deal of the frustrations of modern life are the inflowing constantly of information that plays upon our emotions, our senses, our sense of well-being, and stirs up within us a desire to change things, to make things different than they are. Um, it, it's, and, and so leads to the kind of polarization, the anger. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make something bad good. This certainly is what happened in this gospel. The question is, how do we do so? The people of God, Mary, woman, turns to Jesus and places it firmly in his hands with her prayer, her petition. 
And uh, her question, they have no wine, which is a petition in a way. Um, she did not say, oh, well, let me take care of that and bring me the water, and then she intended to turn it into wine. She says she goes through her son. And that becomes kind of the hermeneutic, the, 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 the way of interpreting and understanding our position in the contemporary world. There is a great deal wrong in the contemporary world, a great deal of injustice, a great deal of, of suffering, a great deal of unhappiness, a great deal of frustration. And the more that we try to solve those problems alone, the more we try to solve those problems by purely only human means, the worse they become. No one can say, certainly, that the political milieu of this country has ever been worse than it is today. We've had, certainly, difficulties and problems. Um, and we've had the Civil War, but that was not a question of internal politics. That was a question of separating two different societies. But the fact of the matter is that now the hatred and the absurdity of that hatred runs so deep within the political system that it is virtually paralyzed. Um, Mary reminds us that this is inevitable when we try to solve the problems of the world by ourselves, when we try to solve the problem, for instance, of excessive drinking in the, in the, in the, in the 19th century, early 20th century in the United States. And we thought as social ill, we're going to legislate, we're going to get rid of this. And so we introduced, um, we inter introduced the, f the forbidding of alcoholic beverages, prohibition. What did prohibition do? Did it stop drinking? No. People made it uh, in, at home. People made it in secret. People served it in the speakeasies and so forth. But it gave rise to organized crime. It gave organized crime the greatest opportunity they'd ever had to take control of the social life and of the economic life of the country. And although those particular forms of prohibition, um, criminal cartels and so forth, have kind of faded away, they are certainly replaced by the drug cartels, they are certainly replaced by the political corruption, um, and certainly replaced by the fanaticism that has taken over much of the social life, because there is nothing beyond us to moderate it, to mediate it, to in some way, shape, or form mold it and help to form it for us. We have decided we will do it all on our own. And we have seen and we will see, the more we decide to do this all on our own, the more disastrous the whole thing will become. And eventually, if there is not some kind of turning away from self toward the other, there will be an enormous destructive thing take place within our own society and obviously within Western culture as well. For all the West, not just the Americans, but all the West are involved in this, in this uh, deceptive game of, uh, of self-aggrandizement and self-divinization. So that when then we find that Jesus in this gospel has addressed the social problem of the, of the immediate social problem and that he has solved the problem, he has also, however, created the mystery. And this, too, is part of our understanding of what goes on and our understanding of how things happen. It is the mystery that takes place. For they do not know 
how the wine came to be. They do not know why it's there. And they have to search for the source, the source of the goodness, the source of the rescue, the source of the redemption of the situation. And that too is for us part of our response, how we deal with the intervention, how we deal with the Lord moving into our societies and into our world. Our people do pray, and we pray for the, for, the, for the country, and we pray for the church, and so forth. And those are powerful prayers. And we are, we are assured by the Lord that ultimately those prayers for the good of the church will be answered. And, uh, and so we live with hope and with confidence in the power of God. We may find ourselves in the boat on the stormy sea with Jesus asleep in the bow, but when he does awake and when the cry become, our cry becomes loud enough, he comes and calms the waters. I think that we have seen strange things happen within our society within the last hundred years or so. We've seen perhaps the greatest depravity of the human spirit that ever really had manifested itself in at least the Western world and uh, in the 20th century. Um, and we have seen the destruction that it has caused emotionally and psychologically and spiritually um, and even physically to the people of the West. And we see how it exacerbates and how it gets increasingly complex and difficult. And yet at the same time, we know that miraculous things take place. No one is able, no matter how hard they try, to describe and to, to explain completely the fall of the Berlin Wall. There it is. Something intervened. Something transpired. And in the doing so, it opened up a whole new section of Europe. And opening up a whole new section of Europe, it opened up a whole new section of Europe that was more deeply embedded in Christianity and in faith in Jesus Christ than that which was on the western side of the wall was becoming. And so not only do we have a certain sense of deeper fidelity in Eastern Europe, but we also have a much more active presence of the Russian Orthodox Church um, throughout Russia, but also throughout the Far East. And, uh, and, and whatever its problems and difficulties might be, it does bring the message of Jesus Christ. So, yes, so strange things happen, things that only centuries later sometimes can we look back and truly understand. But it comes from the power of intercession, from the power of our intercession for the sake of the hosts of the world who have stumbled, who have bungled, who have, um, who have misplanned, who don't, didn't grasp the reality of the situation and so forth. And through the power of that intercession and the leader of that power of that intercession is the woman, the new Eve, the mother of the human race, the new mother of the human race, and also the representation, the icon within the Johannine text of the, of the church, the people of God. The people of God is not just the laity. The people of God is the church in its whole and it's in, in, in its entirety. So it includes the clergy, the religious, the hierarchy, the laity, and so forth. For anyone within the clerical ranks or the hierarchical ranks to address the laity as the people of God and exclude, the, exclude their own kind from it has a very distorted notion of the meaning of the church and the meaning of the word, the people of God. It is a whole. It is an entirety. 
And in that whole and entire presence, the woman stands out in the gospel as the one who is its representative, as the one who is the icon of its existence in the world. Mary represents the community and becomes the voice of the community and becomes the powerful intercessor within the midst of the community. These are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind from this miracle story. I know that there's endless jokes about turning water into wine and so forth, but the depth of this story is something which must remain deeply embedded within us. First of all, Jesus brings back into reality that which was intended from the very beginning, that which is creation without sin, that which is the presence of the Creator God without the encumbrances of human sinfulness gathered around it and clinging to it. It is also the story of the power of the Church, and it is the story of the role of the Virgin in the Church. It is the story of the redemption of the new Eve. It is the story in all of its components and in all of its ways of the power of prayer, of intercession, and the power of the Lord to respond to those. And in so doing, lead us deeper into mystery. For it is deep into mystery that the work of the Lord draws us. For we cannot comprehend it in its entirety, and we cannot understand it in its wholeness. And so we have these stories, we have these images from Scripture, these things which contain within them these truths, which if they are simply narrative, if they are simply discursive, they do not in any way draw us into the realization of what happens. But in the imagery of it, our minds, our imaginations, our hearts, our souls are able to become engaged with something that transpired and in so doing to wonder more deeply and then who is this person? Who is this Christ? And then the gospel says, and this was the first of the signs given by Jesus, and it was given in Cana in Galilee. He let his glory be seen, and his disciples believed in him. If he had just done a magic trick, it would not have in any way drawn the disciples into deeper faith. If he had just done a magic trick, it would not have been, the glory of the Lord would not have been seen. Why is the glory of the Lord seen in changing water into wine? Because Jesus has, in some way, shape, or form, provided abundance and the abundance of the goodness of the creation which God has given us in the first place, which is supposed to be sustained among us and within us and is supposed to be with us until the end of time. So the sign leads to the revelation of his glory and the revelation of his glory leads to faith. Such is true in the contemporary world. The signs that Christianity performs in the midst of the world should lead to a grasping of the glory of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord should then deepen within us faith. Let us scour the horizons of our lives. Let us look at the wondrous things that have transpired, not concentrate on the hardships and the failures, but on the wondrous things that we cannot explain how that happened. And then let that be for us the sign that reveals to us the glory of the Lord's presence within us and around us, and let it lead us always into deeper faith. 
And when we find ourselves stranded and trapped in a difficult and impossible situation in the middle of the world, let us then listen and turn to the woman as, in fact, the stewards seem to have done in the gospel. And let Jesus look at her and say, woman, what do you, why do you turn to me? And then let her respond and answer. And let us have faith that the Creator God present among us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in church and sacrament will bring about within our lives that transformation which opens us up to recognize the glory of the Lord and draws us then more deeply into the mystery of faith. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he